0: It's always interesting to get a glimpse of someone famous before they were famous. Like to get a glimpse of someone we all know, see on the internet, read about, maybe when they were a kid. Uh, So I thought it might be interesting to start out with a couple pictures of famous people as children and see if you could guess who these people are. Elvis, yep. Yep. You can just totally tell with those lips. Are you a big Elvis fan? That took like half a second. All right. when he was young, no. <laughs> Next one. <laughs> yeah, that one's about pretty easy, huh? As a teenager, Robin Williams. JFK, he looked the same as an adult as he did as a kid. Muhammad Ali, Muhammad. <laughs> that's right. And last... <laughs> How did that sneak in there? I, I had to sneak that in there. They're famous, you. I'm not claiming to be famous, but uh, that's me and my brother, Matt. And to give you a glimpse into my childhood, I was the kid in school that was always the prankster. There was one guy in our class that we always enjoyed uh, daring to do things. And uh, me and a couple of my friends didn't want to get in trouble, so we would dare Joe to do things. That was my role. I was the quiet instigator. So Joe... Uh, when we dissected the Luber grasshoppers in biology, we, we told him we'd pay him ten bucks if he ate one. <laughs> so we wait, he waits till English class, which is the next class, and I hear this crunching behind me, and I look back and his eyes are watering because those things are soaked in alcohol. And... When it was time to graduate, it was a Christian high school, so we were all supposed to have a rehearsal and choose a verse that we were going to have read at the at the graduation and I gave him a juicy passage from Song of Solomon because he was wondering what passage to write down. I said, how about this? Chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. And it came time to go through the rehearsal and he got up there on stage and (laughs) the look on the teacher's face was priceless. There's a glimpse into my childhood. I was the the quiet instigator. It's always fun to know a little bit about someone's childhood, to get a glimpse. And that's what Luke does for us in our Our passage this morning in the life of Jesus. He gives us a small portrait of Jesus as a 12 year old boy. The only portrait we got. He gives us just a little bit of background, and then he gives us this portrait of Jesus. A couple of things we know that are important to understand about Jesus as a boy is first off, he was a Jewish boy. One man said this, I can no more understand Jesus apart from his Jewishness than I can understand Gandhi apart from his Indianness. You won't understand Jesus well until you understand that he grew up as a Jew. His name, Yeshua. That's how he said it in their language. It was the equivalent of Joshua. We know the angel gave it to him, but lots of kids had that name at that time. Joshua, Yeshua. So in our ears, we hear Jesus and We want to bow down because we know who he is. And that culture is like Bob or Joe. So that's part of why the Pharisees had such a hard time embracing him. They wouldn't even say the whole name of God. And here's this kid named Bob. His parents and other people are talking about him being God. We don't don't get this. That would grate on their Jewish ears. How could Jesus be God? He's just Mary's boy. You know, that's the, the kind of things we need to understand about his growing up. But Luke gives us a little background. Last week we we saw his Jewishness when he went to the temple dedicated as a firstborn. Now we're going to get an overview of the next 11 or so years of his life that took him to age 12. Uh, Verse 39 says that after those things as a baby, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And here's the summary of 11 years. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. There's a word in there that ought to blow every one of our minds. If you know your Old Testament and you believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, do you know what that single word is that ought to shake us a little bit? He grew. The word grew. Listen to some of the Old Testament passages about God. Psalm fifty-five, nineteen: 19. God who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, He will hear them and humble them. Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. And yet here we see Jesus Growing. The mystery of fully God and fully man is a beautiful and awe-inspiring thing. We see him growing in a couple ways. He's growing in strength, just as most kids do as they grow. They they get taller, they get stronger, they get faster. And he grew in wisdom. The grace of God was upon him. How in the world does God grow? (laughs) You could chew on that the rest of your life. But Paul sums it up in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. While Jesus never once stopped being God, he willingly laid aside the use of much of what it meant to be God while he was here to experience life as one of us. He goes on to choose a story. One story from his childhood. Now there are many fanciful accounts of what Jesus did as a story. We believe they're more like National Enquirer kind of stuff. Like not true. Like there's one account out there that says Jesus was playing with his friends and he picked up some clay and formed it into a bird and made it fly. There's, There's a couple of those stories floating around. But John comes right out in his gospel and says when Jesus turned the water into wine, that was the first of his signs by which he revealed his glory. So we know all that other stuff is just hype. But Luke sits down with Mary. You remember, she's probably in her 70s by now. And he probably hears lots of stories about Jesus as a boy. But he chooses one. And as we go through it, we're going to wrestle with the question, why did he choose this one? And we're going to learn why he chose it, I believe, and what we can learn from it. First, a little background. Verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Faithful Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year for three celebrations. If they couldn't get to all three, the one you didn't want to miss was Passover when you remembered the deliverance from Egypt. So Mary and Joseph, again, we see faithful Jewish parents. And it says when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, 12 years old is important here because at 13, every Jewish young man would would become a man. He would become responsible for his actions before the Lord. So that 11th and 12th year was important because parents would take him down there, show him around, show him what happens in these festivals to give the boy a preview of what it would look like when he was a man, when he would celebrate these things himself. At 13, they would become a son of the covenant. That's how they phrased it. The modern day practice we know as a bar mitzvah. This was his trial run at this. It says, verse 43, After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now some of you, especially if you're only on your firstborn child right now, you're saying, how do you lose your kid? (laughs) I know it happens, okay. For one thing, just practically speaking, we know he had at least four brothers and multiple sisters. So he was in a large family, okay. I know from here, from my wife Carolyn, that she grew up in a family of six and one of their kids got left at church on a Sunday morning. So it happens. <laughs> they went back and got them. It happens with large families. But more to the point, when, when these groups would travel to Jerusalem, they'd, they'd walk long ways. And, and we think of family in terms of just our nuclear family. They thought more broadly than that. And they would travel in large social groups from their town. So you got this large group from their town of Nazareth that would walk along the road. And then as they got to other towns... Other groups from other towns would join that group and it would grow and grow. And this would provide safety from robbers and things like that. But also, the women and children usually traveled in the front, the young children. And the men and the older boys would usually travel in the back. So you can see how it would be easy for Joseph to be thinking, oh, Mary's got him up front. And Mary to be thinking, oh, no, Joseph's probably got him in the back. But they, they get a day into their travels and they realize that he's missing So it takes them a day to get back to Jerusalem, and they begin to look for him. And here's where we're going to learn three reasons why I believe Luke chose this story, three things we can take out of it. You remember the beginning of his gospel, he said, I want you to be certain of the things you've been taught. So everything he chooses is for that underlying reason. He wants us to believe that this young man, this young boy is fully God and fully man came to save us from our sins and we're going to see we learned that he grew we're going to see three ways that Jesus grew in this passage and what it has to do with you and I Uh, the first one is he grew in wisdom verse 46 says, after three days and one day out one day back and one day looking around for him they found him in the temple courts sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. It says they were amazed at his understanding. Now how did he get his understanding? Remember verse 40 says he was filled with it but we have to go down to verse 52 where we'll go later where it tells us he grew in wisdom. See, as fully God and fully flesh, we don't believe that Jesus had this full download the moment he was conceived in Mary's uh, womb. We don't believe he knew it all. He, he grew in wisdom. This is mind-blowing. Another Old Testament passage about God. To think of God growing in wisdom. Isaiah 40. Israel had thought that God had forgotten them. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters of In the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord? And here we go, this is the key part. Who can instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who does the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The answer to all these questions is no one. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Contrast that with what we see here. Jesus grew in wisdom, or as it says in verse 46, they found him in the temple courts sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. God of gods listening to the teachers and asking them questions. In verse 52, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. What does this tell us? Well, if you remember, Luke is not only out to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, he's also really working hard to show us that Jesus is the Son of Man. And we never want to lose either or the other. There's one extreme That says, when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, we only need to believe that he was the Son of God who died for us, and that's where it stops. There's another extreme that says, we need to look at everything he did and do it in our own power, and we leave aside the belief in him as the Son of God. The biblical picture is both. We need to believe that he is the Son of God But also that he is the perfect son of man who, when we trust in God and receive the Holy Spirit, we can now walk in his footsteps. Not in our own power, but in the power of the Spirit. The author of Hebrews says he was our forerunner. That means he went before us to show us the way. So when we see Jesus growing in wisdom, one of the things we take away from that is, I ought to grow in wisdom. As a child of God. I must never be content at the level of wisdom I have today. As long as I'm alive, I should keep learning and practicing what I learn. We believe the way he learned this wisdom, even as a 12-year-old boy, was simply by reading the scriptures that he had in his home. Like I said, he didn't get an instant download In Mary's womb. Even as a child, he was diving into the scriptures. Psalm 119. This is how we get it as well. 119, verse 99 says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. You want wisdom? Where do you get his statutes and his precepts? In your Bible. Jesus grew in wisdom. We ought to be growing as well. Beyond the simple practice of reading His Word, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 to the believers. He says, You are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. you got the written Word. you got the living Word who is now our wisdom, Jesus Christ. He gives us His Holy Spirit, John 14, 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Let me ask you the question with this first point. Jesus grew in wisdom to the point where his teachers were amazed at the wisdom he had. Are you growing in wisdom? Or if you look back five, ten years earlier in your walk, are you still at the same place? The challenge here is grow. Grow. Dive into your Bible. Let Jesus take you deeper into wisdom. The second thing he grew grew in was his understanding of his relationship to his heavenly Father. As he read those scriptures and grew as a boy, he grew in his understanding of his relationship with his heavenly Father. Look at verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Of course they were. You can't find your boy, and finally you find him, and he's just sitting there talking with the teachers. His mother said to him, understandably, probably a little perturbed, maybe a lot perturbed, Son, why have you treated us like this? Any of you parents ever say anything like that to your kids? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. That word anxious is like heart-rending anguish. You you know that if you're a parent and you're in a mall and you can't see him for a second, right? Your whole world comes crashing in. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So they asked him a question, right? Why have you treated us like this? But Jesus, you see this as an adult. He loves answering questions with questions. (laughs) Even as a 12-year-old boy, he, he says, why were you searching for me? He answers a question with a question. And he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, it's interesting that later on in this same temple, as an adult, he would answer another question with a question. You remember he he cleared the temple out, and the Pharisees came to him and said, by what authority do you do these things? You remember his answer? It was a question. He said, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they wouldn't answer him because they were afraid of the crowd. So he said, neither will I answer you. One of Jesus' greatest teaching tools was to answer a question with a question. Here he's teaching his parents a couple important things. He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now what is he teaching them? The first thing we want to look at is had to be. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has this sense of destiny upon his life, that I must be doing these things. He had this sense of destiny upon his life, that I must be in my Father's house here. Elsewhere, we hear in Luke chapter 4, I must preach in the other towns. That's why I can't stay in one town. In Luke 9, he says the Son of Man must suffer. John 3.14, he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. His whole life was encompassed by this sense of I must do what my Father has for me. We look at that and we look at Jesus as our forerunner and ask ourselves, do I have that same sense of must or have to in my life? Where my Father's will above all else is what drives me. Above every other voice, what He says I must do, I must be about. If He says I must make disciples, that just boils over in my life. I, I must do it. If he says I must, whatever it is. And sometimes you hear the word must and you say, I don't, I don't want to live that way. It sounds too confining. But there's different kinds of have-tos and different kinds of musts. Like A- Alex McLaren says this, some necessity is like iron fetters. Sometimes you have to do something for someone and you just really don't want to and it feels like Slavery. But he says, some necessity is like a fountain of life. It inclines us more than it drives us. And he asks the question, have we felt the joyful grip of that necessity? Is it impossible for me not to be doing God's will? What he's talking about is the kind of must, like LeBron James must play basketball. Or J.R.R. Tolkien must write. Or John Mayer must sing. It's this passion that drives someone from the inside out. As Paul said, his love compels us. Do I have that kind of must in my life when it comes to following God? I think about missional community, many small groups in this church that meet together. When we have them at our house or, or we, we meet at the Rosberg's house, we don't go because we have to. We had a couple weeks off recently and when we went back, we went back Because we miss those people. They're our friends and brothers and sisters in the Lord and they're on mission with us. We heard this week from from Jen who's been helping a lady who lost seven or eight dogs in a camper fire. She didn't help that lady because she felt like, oh, I have to. It just, God laid it on her heart that just as God had blessed her, she wanted to go out and be a blessing to that lady and now she's bringing it to the missional community saying maybe we can help her out in some other ways. Not because she feels like it's this external list of things to do, but because God has put that inside of her. I don't love my wife because I have to. I love her because I want to. It overflows from my heart. And that's the same idea. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He's saying that if you love me, obedience, this have to, will, will overflow. That's how he feels about his father here. Speaking of his father, you see another teaching point here. You notice what Mary said? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Who's she talking about when she says your father? Joseph, Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, if you will. But what does Jesus say? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or about my father's business? That's another way to translate that. He's saying, look, I I have a a Heavenly Father whose will matters in my life more than any other will, even yours. And I think about Ephesians 5.1 that tells us as God's kids, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. If you grew up or are growing up with a dad that you love, the natural response is, I want to be like him. And that's what he's saying here. We ought to, like Jesus, want to be about our Father's business. Do you have that desire? The point for us is we should be defined first in life by our relationship to God the Father. Now, of course, Jesus was uniquely the Son of God. None of us are deity. I'm not saying that. But as we get into the New Testament epistles, it says we're co-heirs with Christ. We're brothers and sisters of Christ. Does that relationship above all other relationships define the choices that I make? Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, we'll explain that in a minute, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now we know from other passages that Jesus says to love even our enemies. So you, you take scripture in all of its context. We, we got to unpack this a little bit. He's not literally saying to despise these people, but what he's saying is that our love for God ought to burn so hot and so bright that every other love in our life pales in comparison. That every other love in our life looks like hate because I love him so much. So much higher than, than anyone else. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. That first part, he says, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Now, obviously, we know this is the same Paul that later tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So we don't want to go too far with this, guys. This is not an excuse for you to go out of here and be a jerk. What... What is Paul saying, though? He's saying that even if you're married, even if you have things of this world, even if you're happy in this world, even if you're mourning in this world, you should hold on to the things of this world lightly in comparison to the way you hold on to Jesus. Do not let any of them get in the way of you following Jesus with all of your heart. Put Him above everything. Bruce Larson calls this three-dimensional living. Realizing that in every relationship there is a third person involved here. And that what he says matters more than either of the the other two of us. So let me ask you, do you have that growing awareness of your relationship to your Father? And does that define you above everything else? There's one level, the decisions, the choices, where I go, what I say, what I do. That's the surface level though. We want to go deeper why I go, why I say, why I do, and then the deepest level is who I am. When somebody asks you, who are you, the first thing as a child of God ought to be a son or daughter of God. That ought to be the primary source of our identity. So are you defined by that? Or has your relationship with anyone else or anything else become more important? Does anything else become more of a factor in how you see yourself? How you think and what you do? And as we think of that sense of must for God, let me ask you what are the things where you have that driving sense of I have to be about my Father's business? What are they? Third and final thing we see Jesus growing in is obedience in the everyday. Now this is another mind-blowing concept. Hebrew says that Jesus learned obedience. (laughs) Okay, number one, Jesus is sinless. Number two, he's God. But what's the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying he's also fully man. And as a man, until he came here, he had never been a man before. So inexperience... You don't know what it is to obey as a man until you are a man. And so to experience that, Jesus did that throughout his whole life. Verse 51, he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Some translations say he was submissive to them. He subjected himself to them. If that doesn't blow your mind, the, the lengths Jesus went to as God in flesh to identify with us says they went down to Nazareth. That was a, a very beautiful journey from Jerusalem to Nazareth. As he went, uh, he would go from brown to lush fields, and some of the things he would see would later shape his parables. They, they would probably see wildflowers and weeds among the crops. He would see people separating wheat from chaff. He would see fig trees and grapevines on the hillsides, fields white unto harvest. You can see how his childhood journeys even shaped the stories he would later tell, but as he goes back as this 12-year-old boy, he enters into 18 years of relative obscurity. We don't know a whole lot about the rest of that time, except that he most likely worked with his father as a carpenter, and he was submissive to his, to his parents. He was obedient in the every day. And what he does in that is he redeems the importance of the everyday for you and I. Sometimes we tend to think of life in terms of highlights, like that missions trip or this event. And and we downplay the day in, day out, waking up, going to work. But you think about the Son of God who came here. He lived basically 30 years of his life in relative obscurity and only three in what we'd call the limelight. He redeems the importance of the everyday for us we learn a couple things from this. The the rigors of everyday life make our ministry relevant. You see, if we all went away to some compound and just read the Bible all day and and hugged each other all day and prayed all day and we didn't work and we didn't do things, how relevant do you think we'd be to a world out there? How relevant do you think they, they think David Koresh and the people of Waco were? If we just lived in this spiritual mountain all the time, we wouldn't be relevant. We become relevant in our day-in, day-out living. That's what Jesus showed us. John 14. the Word became flesh and blood. This is in the message. I like the way it says it. Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. It's important that we're incarnational, just as Jesus was. He took on flesh. He understands what it is to work and live in relative obscurity in a backwoods town where people said, can any, anything good come from Nazareth? He understands. It's important to be incarnational, present. Listen to what Hugh Halter writes. Like harsh words spoken without tact or a fire burning outside a fireplace, missionality by itself can hurt the cause of Christ, more than it helps. This is why being missional has an inseparable twin. The word is incarnational. It means to take on flesh. If missional means to go, incarnation is about how you go and what people see as you go. It encompasses your posture, your tone, your motives, and your heart. Incarnation is critical because it will eventually determine whether or not people will want to know you or your God. Think about the lengths Jesus took to relate to you and I, and then ask yourself, am I being incarnational in the lives of the people that I know that need him? The everyday obedience is important. That's why in the book of Ephesians, Paul starts out with three chapters saying this is who you are in Christ, and then the last three chapters are basically about the everyday life. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Slaves or today employees, obey your masters. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. It's all this everyday stuff, right? Because the everyday matters. Jesus shows us the importance of obedience for 18 years in the everyday of life. One man said it this way, We do not turn common duty into the Father's business unless we remember Him in the doing of it. But if we carry the hallowing and quickening influence of that great must that we talked about, the have to for God, into all the pettinesses, you all got any pettinesses in your life? And paltrinesses, and wearinesses, anybody got any wearinesses? and sorrows of our daily trivial lives, if we carry that must with us, then we shall find, as Jesus Christ found, that the carpenter's shop is as sacred as the courts of the temple, and that to obey Mary was to do the will of the Father in heaven. Shout out to my brother John this week. He was approved to open up a Snap Fitness. Let's give him a round of applause. I just thought of you in that. As you go to begin that franchise, that work that you do there and the way you represent Christ with your clients and the other franchise owners is every bit as important as what happens in this room or another church room on Sunday, right? When we carry God and that must into the everyday, it becomes crucial and important. So he grew in wisdom. He grew in his understanding of who he was in relationship to his father. And he grew in obedience In the everyday. So let me ask you do you believe in the importance and the power of every day? Waking up, going to work, talking to your neighbors, watching those kids. Do you see how it can make you relevant to those around you? Yes. You see, those things that we do are what connect us with other people. Last week I, I thought about it some more when we talked about the second coming of Christ and how some people have an inclination to go run and hide in the hills somewhere. And build a compound. You know the trouble with that? Who's going to be a light to all the people that are still working? Nobody. Nobody. That's why we've got to engage the everyday as an opportunity for the Lord. Verse 52 sums it up. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I want to close with just two questions. Number one. Are we in awe of Jesus, fully God and fully man? It's this whole passage about him growing and learning obedience. and It ought to blow our minds. It's worthy of spending some time today saying, I worship you, Jesus, for for being fully God and fully man. It's amazing. And secondly, are we too growing in wisdom and in favor with God and man? Do I have a sense of that must, that, that relationship with my father? And am I learning to grow in the everyday obedience? Father, I thank you so much for Luke. He goes out of his way. He's the only one that gives us any childhood stories other than the birth about about Jesus. He gives us this glimpse that even at such a young age, he was growing in his understanding of who he was in relationship to you. It's so beautiful, Lord, and and it's encouraging. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd inspire us to never be content. With the level of wisdom we've attained, may we continue growing in the power of the Spirit. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd lay at least one specific must on our hearts this week. If there's some in this room that, when I ask that, they don't know, It, it was foggy or unclear. Lord, make it clear what you've laid before them this week. We know one beyond the shadow of a doubt. We're here to make disciples. God, wake us up to that must. Let it it drive us. And if there's anybody here discouraged in the everyday, wondering if they are making a difference, if what they do is important, encourage them with 18 years as a young carpenter in a backwoods town. The importance of everyday obedience. The value of being incarnational. Thank you, Lord, for that glimpse into your life. You're now seated on a throne. It's amazing to think back and imagine you as a 12-year-old boy. Thank you for being so tender with us that you would show us that. Uh, Lord, we, we worship you. and We praise you. Thank you for becoming one of us to identify and to save us. Lord, even as we prepare to Give our offering this morning. I pray to be out of hearts of gratitude for God and flesh and to spread that word further. In Jesus' name. Amen.